Well, if you remember, each of these meetings that we're getting together, we're talking about uh, four particular things that have to happen in order for the chaos in which we're in to become orderly. And those things are the church being united again with Christ, uh, the bride with the groom, Israel coming back into the land, restored with the king present, which is king present on the throne of David is number four, and and number three is Satan uh, in prison. And so we will touch on one of those four or all of those four in each of the messages we have. And this morning, uh, I'd like to talk about God's kingdom and Adam. Uh, It's been said that if you get two Jewish people together, you get three opinions. Have you ever heard or experienced that? In a humorous way, it's to say that Jewish people, of which I'm one, are opinionated, independent thinkers. For those who know Jewish people, it's no surprise that we have perfected the art of disagreement. However, one area that Jewish people are in almost total agreement is in the area of Jewish prayer. Uh, Jewish prayer, uh, we want to talk about that. The reason is simple. Almost all Jewish prayer begins with these words. Baruch melech That's the he- That Hebrew prayer, that beginning part, is universal in Judaism. It means, praise be thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Most Jews, I, I was one of them, are taught to memorize that phrase. Whether you're orthodox, whether you're conservative or reform, they use it in their prayers. Contained in that prayer is an acknowledgement that God is the king of the universe. Such an acknowledgement, if it's truly believed, is an important step to better understand of who that king really is. It should be noted that Bible-believing Christians would strongly agree and say amen to those Hebrew words. Baruch atah praise be thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe. So the king of the universe in the Bible, we want to see that. How is it that the Christian could amen such a prayer? Well, it's found in the Jewish scriptures. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 to 12, it says this, Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you will reign over all. The psalmist puts it this way. His kingdom rules over all, Psalm 103 and verse 19. The New Testament writers agree. The Apostle Paul says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In his classic book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, Bible scholar Alva McLean said this, Because in his universal kingdom, God controls the process of material nature. He is able by such means to control the circumstances of human existence and thereby direct the stream of history. As the king of the universe, he is the reason for all things seen and all things unseen. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see the king of the universe in action. We will see the king as creator, the king as commander, the kingdom corrupted, the king as Christ. In chapters 3 and verse 15, three chapters, these chapters are foundational to, the, to understand the king, his kingdom, and his relationship with Adam and mankind today. He is self-existent. 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 10 says, In the beginning, God. These foundational words define the rest of the biblical narrative. Believe them and you can believe the rest. Reject them. And according to the psalmist in Psalm 14 verse 1, you're a fool. And the rest of scripture is utter foolishness to you. From these very words written by Moses, the assumption is that God is the uncaused cause. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, Psalm 90 and verse 2. The creator of the universe asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? As the creator, God is self-existent, all-powerful, from everlasting to everlasting. He told Moses, I am who I am in Exodus chapter 3. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. To be sure, anyone who acknowledges the king of the universe, God, as self-existing, is taking a leap of faith. Yet, believing that instead of God, matter always existed and formed the universe, involves a much longer leap. Genesis chapter 1 continues, he created the heavens and the earth, bara, that Hebrew word B-A-R-A, and transliterated into English, the Hebrew word for created, It's used only with God as the subject, never man. God alone created it all. He took nothing and made something. His method for creation was speaking. He spoke the universe into existence six times in Genesis. Chapter 1 and verse 3 and verse 6, 9, 11, 14 and 20, it says, God said, let there be, and there was. When he was finished creating, the text says, God saw. Thus the king made it all, saw it all. And after he finished it all, pronounced it all very good. The Hebrew word God translated is the word Elohim, the plural form of El. That's important because it provides a clue to a deeper understanding of the creator. Most Hebrew scholars explain it this way by saying Elohim is used to denote the plural majesty or the royal we, which presents God's majesty or royalty. Yet in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. While the claim of for a triune God cannot be made here, the text suggests its plurality. A natural question arises from Genesis chapter 1. How long is a day? Some of the greatest theological and scientific minds have produced untold volumes of books, articles, and videos to answer the question. In an ordinary reading of the text, it simply says evening and morning after each day of creation. Interesting, evening and morning, that's why in Jewish time, the day begins in the evening when the sun goes down. It's already the next day. Each of the six days that God spoke The creation into existence was a literal 24-hour period. The heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, the scripture said, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. 
For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Another question arises from the passages. What was created? Each day's creation tells us a little bit about the attributes of the creator. Day one, let there be light. Before the sun was made, God brought forth light. This pictures the king as light in its purest form. There's no darkness in him. He is separate and holy. The second day, let there be firmament, an expanse of atmosphere, dividing sky from heavens. The king exerts his power by separating and maintaining atmosphere. As the sky and the heavens are vast, so is the king. Day three, let there be dry land. God separated the water to reveal dry ground. Once the ground appears, grass, vegetation, fruit trees, and the seeds appear. Here the king demonstrates his authority over creation by separating the heaven and sky, oceans and continents, dividing the earth to raise up vegetation for food for future creature beings. Day four, let there be lights to divide the day from night. By creating the sun, moon, and stars, the king demonstrates that he's faithful. The cycle of light and darkness is an ongoing cycle. Day five, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. The king demonstrates that he is life giver. Day six, let earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. Let us make man in our image. The king is love, creating diverse creatures to live and thrive on the earth. The king demonstrates and shares dominion with Adam, his creation. Man was not like any other creature in the garden. He was the crown jewel of all the king made. God made Adam possibly from a play on a Hebrew word, Adama, meaning earth, from the dust of the ground. The king actually breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Only man was created in the image of God and according to his likeness. No other creature could make that claim. Like all men and women after him, Adam possessed body, soul, and spirit. Like the king, he possessed intellect. He could think cognitively. He named all the animals. He had emotion, love, anger, joy, compassion, and will, choice. After God created Adam, he knew he was incomplete, so he took his rib from his side and made woman, Eve. When Adam met her, he said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Adam and Eve were the first married couple, and we learn that marriage was not made in heaven, but in Eden. The king of the universe commands. His commands were specific. As commander-in-chief in Eden, the king made all the rules and forced them all. They were not suggestions. These commands were be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Tend and keep the Garden of Eden. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. There was one negative rule of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. Everything Adam and Eve needed to live an abundant, thriving life was in the garden, and it was all provided by the king. The Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. Adam had no weeds to pull. His brow produced no sweat, and he knew no anxiety in his life, uh, something that my people now have all the time, anxiety. He and Eve walked freely in the garden, wherever they chose to walk, and from any tree they wanted except for one. Eden was a wonderful place because there was no sin. 
So uncorrupted were the man and woman that they were completely unaware that they were naked. They really had no shame. Now this kingdom was living. But there was a consequence to disobedience, and that would be separation. We don't know how long Adam and Eve thought about the one negative command. No one knows. What we do know is that as long as they remained loyal to the king's command and did not betray him, their life in the garden would be very good. Breaking the law would bring the death penalty, a consequence that would devastate everything created. To what extent death was understood by Adam and Eve is unknown to us. What we do know is based on Eve's conversation with the serpent in chapter 3, and that they knew what the king meant when he said, you shall not. The text does not explain that the death penalty would mean the breakup of a unique fellowship enjoyed between man and the king. It would separate man from the king, kick him out of his home, force him to live outside the place of protection, provision, and perfection he and Eve enjoyed in Eden. They would lose access to the tree of life, thus their bodies would age, give out, and die, return to dust on the earth. Next we see the king's corrupted kingdom. It brought shame to Adam and Eve. Griffith Thomas, a theologian, pastor, and co-founder with Lewis Sperry Schaefer of uh, what is what was called Dallas Theological Seminary, before that Evangelical Theological College, he said this in Genesis 3, calling it the pivot of the Bible. This is the chapter that explains things like jealousy, cheating, murder, wickedness. In other words, this is the chapter that explains the world we live in today. From that day on, man has done things his own way and will do so until God restores mankind and establishes his eternal kingdom. By eating the forbidden fruit, Eve and Adam acted independently and did their way, not the king's way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells us. Adam and Eve's disobedience evidence they wanted to be in charge of the kingdom, make their own law. This was catastrophic and changed everything in creation. Adam and Eve seemed to know this immediately as they tried to hide from the omniscient God, from whom nothing is hidden, claiming to be ashamed of their nakedness. Of course, God knew where they were. The situation described is a commentary on the change that occurred in Adam's heart and the shame he experienced because of his action. Adam and Eve knew what they had done, and as a result, for the first time, hid from their king. Who told you that you were naked, God asked them in verse 11. How could Eve and Adam, created good and without sin, disobey the king? Genesis 3.1 provides the answer by introducing the tempter, the serpent, was more cunning than any beast of the field, the text says. The serpent was an instrument for Satan. Interestingly, he's the only one in the kingdom other than man who had the ability to speak. He speaks in half-truths, which are really whole lies, planting doubts in Eve's mind. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John Walvoord wrote this. What he did not say was that they would know the good 
without being able to do it and know the evil without being able to avoid it. This was temptation. According to J. Vernon McGee and Through the Bible Radio, that tested if they were righteous. Righteousness is innocence, McGee said, that has been maintained in the presence of temptation. Let, let me say that again. Righteousness is innocence that has been maintained in the presence of temptation. It's not known why Satan approached Eve rather than Adam. He evidently saw an easier target. Adam may have told her what God had told him, which may be why she answered the serpent with a semi-accurate information. She even added something God had not said, where she said, we shall not even touch it. Without planted in her mind, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The temptation became the prescription for other temptations noted in the text of Scripture. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. Satan tried it with Jesus in the wilderness, Eve falling to the temptation that appealed to her flesh, eyes, and desires, took of its fruit and ate. Then she persuaded Adam, who was right by her side, to eat it too. At that moment, the kingdom became corrupted and was in need of redemption. We then see in Genesis 3 the king's Christ. What a mess! The one negative law in the kingdom was violated, and as a result, the king, whose attributes of holiness and righteousness cannot be compromised, must carry out the sentence. The serpent, who seemed to be satanically inspired, questions the king's rule, plants a doubt in Eve's mind, leading her to sin. She then leads Adam to sin as well, and the consequences were felt in all of creation. The serpent is cursed more than all the cattle and loses his legs, for on his belly he shall go forth and eat dust, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. Eve and all future women will have pain in childbirth and a relationship with her husband and all future marriages is under attack. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, verse 16. Adam's work now becomes difficult and he's going to die. In the sweat of his face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Both Adam and Eve have to leave the garden and be separated from the king for the first time. The Lord God sent them out of the garden, verse 23 tells us. Adam and Eve's disobedience had corrupted the whole world. They were left helpless and hopeless, discouraged and depressed. Hiding from the king seemed like their only option. They knew they deserved judgment. It is said, the darker the night, the more glorious the, sun, uh, the sunrise. This was a dark night for all the king's creation. Yet, in Genesis chapter 3.15, there's hope. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the light in the darkness. Here is the good news. The reason a serpent slayer is promised, he is called the seed of the woman who will come to defeat the serpent. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a Bible scholar and Jewish believer himself, says, It is no surprise 
that the very first messianic prophecy should occur within the context of the fall. If sin had not entered the world, there would never have been a need for a redeeming Messiah. If God was really all-knowing, as the Bible claims, then he would be ready to predict the coming of Christ immediately after the fall occurred. Michael Vlack, in his book, uh, He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom, says the coming deliverer must rule from the same realm as Adam. This will relate to the coming last Adam of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Two questions arise from this verse of hope. Who is he that's coming, and when does he arrive? It seemed that Eve thought this would happen right with her firstborn Cain, for she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord in Genesis 4. A more literal translation says, I have gotten a man, the Lord, Yahweh. I have received a man, namely Jehovah. It seems that Eve thought Cain would actually fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Walter Kaiser in his book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, said it this way. If this suggestion is correct, then Eve understood that the promised male descendant of human descent would be in some divine way the Lord. If so, then Eve's instincts about the coming Messiah were correct, but her timing was way off. Rabbi Akiba, a rabbi that uh, I read about, translated some of his work as a young boy, highly respected sage, was required reading. And in the Midrash Rabbah, which is a Jewish commentary, the Hebrew, they say that the Hebrew construction of, G- of Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 implies that Eve thought she was begetting God. The Jewish Targum reads, I have gotten a man, the angel of Jehovah. That Targum actually talks about the angel of Jehovah, which in that period of time, angel of God was synonymous with the word of God, which was synonymous with God himself. Eve believed a special male child was coming to fix the kingdom. She and God had uh, corrupted. She was right. However, that child was not coming from her. As the Bible unfolds, God's plan for the ages, it provides a more detailed description of this promised serpent slayer. This redeemer to come would need the ability to bring uh, mankind a right relationship with God and as the serpent slayer to fix the cursed planet as well. In doing so, he would take his place as the second the last Adam, if you will. As the biblical narrative continues, the Holy Spirit takes the wide swath of possibility and slowly but surely narrows the possibilities to ultimately identify the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what are we to conclude from all this? Well, number one, God is the uncaused cause, the rightful king of the universe, There is a king, and it is God. Everything he created, everything that he made, is very good. He desired man, who he created, in a unique way to choose to be loyal to him. Man and then woman are unique among all creation because they were made in the image of God. Man's disobedience brought a fall to all the human race and polluted creation. Man could do nothing to undo the consequence of sin. 
But God promised a special male child who alone would fix a broken creation. So what do we learn from all this? This king, this kingdom, the corrupted kingdom. We learn it all at the very beginning. And as we take Genesis, you can look to the last book of the scripture, the book of Revelation, and see that where man messed things up, God promised from the beginning to fix it. And as we follow the progression of God and see where we are in his program and plan, we stand right before that period of time where he's going to snatch the church away, deal with Israel again, and that the king who sent his redeemer, who is his son, will sit on that throne in a redeemed, restored, renewed kingdom where those four points that we've been touching on each time we meet together, the church must be with its uh, groom. Israel must be in the land. Satan, who uh, infiltrated the serpent, must be put in jail, confined. And finally, the king must sit on his throne. We're to live every day expected that the king will call us, that the, that the groom will call us, the bride, to be with him so that he can complete and fix the kingdom which has been so corrupted and damaged by man. What a day that will be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we've been able to spend to to meditate and think about the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book where you fashioned the nations, ultimately called out one man who would come out as one particular nation, so unique, so different from all the rest, so blessed with uh, the laws that you have given for protection, for service to you, for worship. And yet as the scriptures unfold, we're we are able to see so clearly how even with the privileges that were given to those unique people who brought forth the promised Redeemer, who gave us the very words of God, yet rejected the Redeemer in order for that good news to go to all the world. And so today, in the confines of of your plan, we stand as the Church of Jesus Christ in a period of time waiting, still waiting expectantly for that time when the trumpet will sound and we will be with you. In the meantime, thank you for making things so crystal clear in your word. And we ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.